Last year, somewhere in Kentucky, a family found buried treasure out in their cornfield. This is a true story. They found a, a, a chunk of gold coins that dated back to the Civil War, 1863-1864, buried in this cornfield, this random field in their, on their property. Now, what apparently had happened was during the Civil War, someone was trying to preserve their, their, uh, you know, their fortune, and so they buried like two years' worth of salary, which in 1864 was $1,000, okay? So $1,000 of gold coins, minted U.S. Uh, you know, treasury coins, they, they buried them in this field somewhere, and then whoever owned that treasure died off or whatever, and the land was sold who knows how many times, but this family ended up finding it. They took the find, or a few samples from the find, to the Numismatic uh, Guarantee Company. All right, This is a company, I had to look up numismatic, okay? This <laughs> relates to basically coinage, okay? So that's the study of coinage and valuing of coinage. This company specializes in verifying, okay, old coins, cleaning old coins, and then valuing the coins. So this family who, in great wisdom, has has remained anonymous, and they haven't told anybody who they are. There's no location or anything. But nonetheless, they took this, this find to this uh, numismatic guarantee company who then verified that they were legitimate, actual, real gold coins uh, from the U.S. Treasury. They cleaned the coins, and then they valued the coins. Worth today, more than $2 million. Imagine what that kind of a find would do to you. I mean, this family's life, whatever they were doing before, has dramatically changed. It doesn't mean necessarily they gave up their vocations or whatever. Certainly they haven't moved. <laughs> but the reality is, I think that their lives will never be the same after finding this treasure. Treasure changes lives. Just, just for a moment this morning, imagine what would your life be like if you found $2 million buried on your property? What would change in your world what would you do differently? What debts would you pay off? What pleasures would you go and enjoy? What plans that you've always dreamed of would you immediately try to bring into reality? Treasure changes lives. The thing is, Jesus says, you have found treasure. Jesus says, you found treasure. And I know you may be sitting there thinking, well, Pastor Ryan, if I had found $2 million, I think I would know. Right? I mean, if I had found treasure like this, certainly I would know. But the fact is that we may be struggling with incorrectly assessing the value of what Jesus has given us. We've been gifted a treasure. We'll talk a lot about that here in just a minute. But when we think about the gift of salvation that has been given to us, I fear that on a daily basis, we have drastically and dramatically underestimated its value. We know it is a good thing, but I wonder, do we know that it's the greatest thing? Are we convinced? Treasure changes lives. The, the question we have to ask as we get into Matthew 13 this morning is, has it changed your life? Now, Jesus uses some parables to teach this important lesson. Parables, of course, are these short stories that are meant to memorably communicate uh, a main lesson, a moral, an idea, right, a concept. 
This is part two of a section of kingdom parables where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. And here we we turn the corner from thinking about uh, the kingdom of heaven being like the weed in the weeds, talking about unbelievers and believers persisting, evil persisting in the world, right, and having to wait for God's judgment to sort it all out. Here Jesus shifts gears to talk uh, maybe in more directly positive terms about what the gift of the kingdom of heaven really is. Right? So we have two short parables that, that, that really help us understand this, and then he gives another warning parable. But as we walk through this passage, I hope that you're convinced this morning of the greatness of the treasure that has been given you in Christ. So let's look at these verses and see how Jesus says it. Right, We're in Matthew 13, verse 44, again, continuing on the kingdom parables. This is Jesus speaking, and Matthew records the words of Jesus. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Okay, so just pause right there at verse 44. This, uh, this apparently a worker, a servant, is, is working on a field. And again, he finds this buried treasure. Now, obviously, the buried treasure doesn't belong to the current owner of the field. And many people have lost sleep over the, the, ethic, uh, the ethical question around finders, keepers, losers, weepers, uh, which you don't find in Scripture directly stated in those terms. But, but here's the deal. Pr- let's just presume here for the sake of the parable that the owner of the treasure has long died, that the, 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 the property has passed on maybe hands a few times, and so there is no legitimate claimant to the treasure. Okay, all right, now we can sleep a little better. This guy, he's savvy, right? He finds the treasure, and he's like, whoa, this is a big deal, this treasure. It's like, he's here in this field. He's like, I can't move it from the field. That would be stealing. He goes, I, I know what I'll do. I'll rebury it, and I'll buy the field, and then it'll be legitimately mine. That's the plan. Notice, crucially, in verse 44, a couple of details here, okay? So he reburies the treasure right in the middle of the verse. Notice what he says. Then in his, what does the Bible say there? Joy. In his joy, he sells, well, he goes, right? So there's action here. He goes and sells everything he has and buys the field. This guy finds this treasure. He's like, whoa, this treasure. Formulates the plan. Okay, got it. Rebury it. I'm going to go and buy the field. I can't afford to buy this field unless I liquidate everything. But in his joy, he goes and he sells his Tesla and he liquidates his stocks and he sells the house and the, the toy, the, his kid's PS5, right? He sells that. He sells all the things. He liquidates everything. Not, not in a mopey like, oh man, that Facebook marketplace deals. He was so happy. People were coming to the house. He's like, boom, let's go. Like, you know, just moving the, moving the product. In his joy, he goes and he sells everything he has, all the stuff that he had acquired, right? All the things. He sells everything he has and he buys the field. Why is it in his joy? Because he knows that what he is getting is greater than what he had. So it doesn't hurt him to sell the belongings and to liquidate the possessions. In his joy, he goes and does it, right? Okay, that's the first parable, all right? In his joy, he goes and sells everything he had and he buys that field. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. Watch the second one. It's another, it's like a two-parter here. It's the same narrative as the first, just a little different detail. Verse 45, again, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. This is the same narrative, right? You have a merchant whose job it is is to go and buy precious pearls for resale. That's what he does. And this is before the age of synthetic pearls. And so, ladies, you can imagine how valuable those pearls were because they were hard to find. And so this merchant, is, it's, a lucrative, uh, it's a lucrative business if you can find the pearls, right? And so here this merchant, who's in search of fine pearls, in verse 46, he finds one priceless pearl. One pearl that is so beautiful and so glorious. He's never seen anything like it. And this merchant goes, and notice again verse 46, it's the same acts. He went and sold everything he had and bought it. This merchant is so blown away by the beauty of this pearl. that he says, I'm going to go and sell all the other pearls. I'm selling all the other stuff. And I'm going to buy this pearl. And what's so funny is, he doesn't buy it to sell it. He just buys it to possess it. To enjoy it. He'd been on, on a search for pearls his whole you know, professional life. And here he finds this one pearl. And he's like, this is it. I... I I, this is it. I found it. I've got it. Note the steps. He sells everything he has. He liquidates everything else to possess this one priceless pearl. These kingdoms, excuse me, these parables portray the kingdom of heaven like treasure and secondly, like a merchant. Again, it's the same point in both parables. But we realize here Jesus is not just talking about the kingdom. He's talking about our experience of entering the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about our experience of enjoying the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about what it's like to become a kingdom citizen and live as a kingdom citizen. And what does he say about it? Well, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is an immeasurable treasure. Citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is an immeasurable treasure. We cannot calculate its value. We can't put a number to it. What is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom is the abode of the king. And so when we think about what the kingdom of heaven is, we think about it's the place where God reigns, where he has authority. And at this point, at this phase in history, Jesus has introduced the kingdom of heaven. He said it's now here with his, with his advent. And of course, we find entrance into it available through his continued mission, specifically his death and his resurrection, right? And then from that day, his kingdom has grown. But his kingdom is not yet in its fullest form. It's not yet fully visible. It's not yet in its full maturity. It's continuing to grow. And so at this moment, we have to recognize we live in the kingdom of God, although we live next door to neighbors who don't live in the kingdom of God. It is an invisible yet partially visible kind of a kingdom, for the moment. One day, that kingdom will be fully visible. One day, that kingdom will be the only kingdom. But we're not there yet. And because we're not there yet, and because God's kingdom is partially invisible at the moment, we often undervalue it. We don't see its greatness. and We don't appreciate how much it's really worth. And so here, Jesus says, I'm just going to give you two little stories just to help you understand how great the kingdom of heaven is. It's like treasure. How great having and being a part of the kingdom of heaven is. 
It's like a merchant. And so he tells these stories. Citizenship in his kingdom is an immeasurable treasure. Why? Well, because the value of the kingdom is directly tied to the value of the king. The greatness of the kingdom is directly tied to the greatness of the king. So we can just use a little logic this morning. And we can argue that because God is infinitely glorious, because he is, his, his greatness cannot be measured, right? and because he is fundamentally and forever good, his kingdom is therefore infinitely glorious, its value cannot be measured, and it is fundamentally good. And so we see the greatness of the kingdom as a reflection of the greatness of the king. The, the kingdom of heaven is our only hope for peace, satisfaction, and justice. It's our only hope for all the things that we long for. The only place we're going to find that and be satisfied is in his kingdom. And so here Jesus says, you just have to understand that my kingdom is a treasure. And you can't measure its value. Now, that's the baseline. But what he really wants us to grasp is how these characters respond to the treasure. This is where we really kind of see the takeaway for us. We have to, first of all, understand and, and, and understand and embrace the value of his kingdom. Okay, it's an immeasurable treasure. But this treasure does something to people. In fact, it makes them do crazy things, according to their neighbors. Could you imagine the neighbor of the one guy when he's selling everything? He's got that garage sale, just keeps having it. You know, and it's like, what is wrong with you, man? Like, well, something's happened to me. This treasure creates, first, joyful commitment. We find this in the aspect and the narrative of the finding of the treasure, the discovery of the priceless pearl. In the, first, in the first parable here, in the treasure, we find it's from his joy that this person goes and sells their belongings and so forth. The treasure of the kingdom of heaven, citizenship in his kingdom, right, creates joyful commitment. This, this joyful response, this is not, I'm going to work hard so I can try to earn the kingdom. This is a response to finding the kingdom, right? So this is, this is after the discovery has been made, after the person has realized what has been given to them, then they respond with this joyful commitment where they, they go out and they do these certain things in response. But note that it's fundamentally driven by joy. The going, the selling, and the buying, right? The, the three next steps in the first parable, they all are motivated by the joy of the person from finding the treasure. So it's this joy that motivates them to act. What is Jesus teaching his disciples? He's saying, listen, what you've been gifted in my kingdom is an immeasurable treasure, but make no mistake, in participating in the kingdom, it will cost you, and it may cost you dearly. And so you need that joy to motivate perseverance through the cost of discipleship. That's where the parable goes. The joy motivates the person to get rid of all they have. In reality, the disciples of Jesus, many of them, will have their belongings taken from them. They will lose friends. In many cases, they will lose family. They'll be disowned. Some of them will face prison time. Most of the 12 will be executed for their faith in Jesus. Jesus says, my kingdom is worth it. My kingdom is worth selling all that you have. My kingdom is worth joyfully motivated perseverance. 
Can I just make a, a little side note here? Okay. Joy is not optional in the Christian life. It's not like a bonus add-on. Joy is a fundamental component of what it means to follow Jesus. This joy doesn't mean we won't face hard times. In fact, I think that's kind of the point of the parables, is that, no, there's going to be a cost. There's going to be a lot that has to be gotten rid of and paid in discipleship and following Jesus. But make no mistake, even in the hardship of what God may have ordained for us and the trials that we may experience, no one can take that joy away because no one can take that treasure away. Because the treasure of citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is immeasurable, the joy that goes with it can't be lost. Now, we can lose, kind of, you know, lose it in the sense of we can focus on other things and we can get focused on the negative. We can miss that joy some days. But make no mistake, it's not an optional add-on to the Christian life. Joy is a fundamental in the Christian life because of the value of what we have been gifted in Christ. This doesn't, I mean, we're, not, we're not belittling the hardships that we have to face. We do face significant hardships, but those hardships can't rob you of this joy. It's there. It's there because the value of the kingdom isn't going anywhere. So, first of all, the treasure creates joyful commitment, right? But then secondly, it also creates costly pursuit. This is in the selling part of the narrative where both characters go and they sell right, all that they have to buy this great treasure. That's costly pursuit. One commentator said, the kingdom of heaven is something worth losing everything for. The kingdom of heaven is something worth losing everything for. Well, here we find maybe an uncomfortable aspect to this parable. Because for many, the kingdom of heaven isn't a treasure. It's an intrusion. Because here, oh, you've been gifted forgiveness of your sins. You've been summoned into God's kingdom and become his son or his daughter. But again, that might entail losing family, losing friends, hardship, difficulty. There's a cost to discipleship. Yes, you have to give up drunkenness. Yes, you have to give up gossip. Yes, you have to give up pride. Yes, there's a cost to discipleship. There's a cost to following Jesus. And yet because the kingdom's so valuable, we joyfully pursue it and we pay that cost. And indeed, in the, in the parable, they pay the cost gladly. Happily we'll pay it because the treasure is worth so much. But because of our sin, on some days, I fear that the kingdom of heaven is not a treasure. It's an intrusion. I don't want to pay the cost of discipleship today. I don't want to follow Jesus today. I'd rather just pursue money. I'd rather just pursue peer approval in the form of social media likes, followers. I'd rather pursue achievement, power, you know, get to the top of that corporate ladder. Maybe it's grades in a, in a school environment. I want to pursue comfort. I want to pursue food. I want to pursue sleep. I want to pursue entertainment. Whatever it is, right? We want to pursue that instead of the kingdom. And Jesus says, listen, this kingdom, you can't measure the value, but it will cost you. It is going to change your life. And, and when we have to give up those other pursuits, some of them we give them up forever. The ones that are simple, we say, no, I'm done. I'm done with that. Some of them we have to learn how to value them under God's authority, like our family or like a vocation, right? We have to learn how to understand that God gets the glory for this. And I, don't, I don't see it as my God, but it's a gift from my God, right? So we learn how to appreciate it. But one way or another, there's a day when we have to say no to things because of the treasure of the kingdom. 
And we don't do that with a, with a dour look on our face, with a frown and with, oh, moping around. Oh, man, I wish I could go get drunk with all my coworkers again. No, it's from his joy that he goes and sells everything for the kingdom. Th- these characters are happy to pay the ultimate price for this treasure because it's so valuable. So they say, I'm willing to, I'm willing to liquidate it all. But I wonder if Jesus called you today to liquidate for him, what would you be hesitant to put out in that garage sale? What would you think? Yeah, but, but not fill in the blank, right? I can follow Jesus, but I can still keep whatever. And of course, being a disciple of Jesus doesn't automatically mean we have to give up everything. But it means he's worth giving up everything. And when push comes to shove, you might decide, I need to say no to this because of the value of the kingdom. This treasure creates joyful commitment, costly pursuit, and it creates new priorities. New priorities. This is the final stage in these two parables. So the the person finds the treasure, they go and sell all that they have, and what's the last step? They buy the treasure. He buys the field. He buys the priceless pearl. Comes into possession of the treasure. And now we're talking about new priorities. Valuing the kingdom rightly. Wholeheartedly, positively pursuing the kingdom. The disciple of Jesus can say, your kingdom come. Right? And we can mean that. There's a positive replacement here of the pursuit of sin and self with the pursuit of Christ and his priorities. This treasure changes us. It changes what we value. And so all of a sudden, well, you know, we're in, we're in situations in our lives where we're going, wow, Jesus calls me to something different than what my culture calls me to or what I really want to do or what my family expects me to do or what my friends are all doing, right? Jesus calls me to something different. This is our attitude about everything. Vocation, school, right? Retirement, money, entertainment, romantic pursuits, all of it. The whole, everything in our lives, all of a sudden now, is like there's a little different trajectory. It doesn't necessarily mean we live different in every aspect to our neighbors, but we have a different purpose, a different goal. So we buy groceries at the same grocery store, but because of the kingdom, you buy groceries for the glory of God. And there's a difference. There's a difference in why we do the things that we do. We live now with new priorities. Note especially here the priceless pearl that's just bought. It's bought to be enjoyed. It's bought just to be participated in and experienced. And Jesus says, that's my kingdom. You know, maybe you were sold a version of Christianity that said, well, if you say this prayer, God will forgive you of your sins and you could have eternal life. And like that was it. That was all you were told. For many, I think actually that is all that people are told. Like that's the gospel. That is the baby first step of the gospel. That we're gifted the forgiveness of our sins. Absolutely. But what does that lead to? That leads now to citizenship in his kingdom, which Jesus says changes everything. It's an immeasurable treasure. And that treasure results in joyful commitment. It results in costly pursuit. And it certainly changes our priorities. Some, however, don't see value in this treasure. And that's where the third parable comes into play. It's a warning parable. Verse 47. Similar to the parable of the wheat and the wheat, actually the same exact point of the previous one in Matthew chapter 13. 
But notice what Jesus says in verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish. And when it was full, they dragged it ashore, sat down, gathered the good fish into containers, but threw out the worthless ones. If you pause there, this is not brain surgery, okay? This is dragnet fishing. They would have two boats. They would, they would run a net between the two boats. They would put uh, weights on the two corners. They would have floats at the top of the net, so that it would basically be like a wall underwater. The two boats would, in parallel, they would move forward, and they would collect all these fish. Just all the fish would get caught in the net. Fish that were uh, alive and valuable and fresh and good for eating and fish that were sickly or even dead. They just collect all the fish. And then they take the net, they drag the net onto the shore and they pull it onto the shore. And then what's next? Well, they sort the fish and they had two containers. Keep and sell or get rid of, right? And so here they would go through the good fish, they would put in the good container and the worthless ones or the dead ones, they would put in the other container. It's It's a sorting game, right? Notice what Jesus says in verse 49. He explains it, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out, separate the evil people from the righteous, and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a warning parable. Again, same exact point as what we saw last week in the wheat and the weeds, that one day there will be a day of reckoning, a day of judgment. And fundamentally, there are two people. There are people who have found the kingdom, who have become righteous because of the grace of God, and they are now kingdom citizens, and those who are not. Those who have rejected Jesus and his kingdom, and they may be nice people, they may be really heinous, wicked people, but fundamentally they still have rejected Christ. They've rejected his authority, his kingship. And their destiny is certain, and it will be judgment. In fact, in verse 50, the way Jesus says it, they will be thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. That image is an image of eternally facing judgment for their sin. It's, of course, as we said last week, it's a a reversal of the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3 where these three believers were thrown into that fiery furnace supposedly to execute them because they wouldn't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol. And yet here Jesus says, there will be a furnace, but make no mistake, it's for those who reject me. There's a warning here. This treasure is not for everyone. That doesn't mean it's not available for everyone. It simply means that not everyone will believe. And those outside the kingdom will be judged eternally. Now at this point, we have to recognize that often we, maybe in ourselves or because of our culture, we experience objections to God's judgment. We might think or feel sin isn't that big of a deal. Or in our day and age, sin isn't even a thing. It doesn't exist. But of course, that runs in direct conflict with deep down what we all know, that there is ultimately a fundamental, a fundamental guide to know what is right and wrong. There is a standard, and sin is a thing. Our culture says it isn't. At this point, the Word of God helps us, doesn't it? In Romans, the Apostle Paul tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we push back and say, well, yes, sin is a big deal. In fact, it's such a big deal. It's a big deal forever. Some people object, well, why do sinners, why are they judged forever? Well, we have no reason to believe that after death, sinners will all of a sudden turn to Christ. In fact, quite the opposite is true. They've made their decision and their rebellion against God's authority will persist even in death. And so the fact is, their judgment will persist with their unbelief. 
We might judge ourselves by a relative standard. This is the white sock fallacy. Have you heard this? You have white socks in your drawer? Every once in a while, I pull out a white sock out of my drawer, and my wife corrects me that they are not white. But the reason why I think they're white is because I'm comparing them to other socks in the drawer that are not white. But then, like, when you get new socks, and you ever compare your new socks with your other supposedly white socks, and you're like, these, aren't, these are, like, dark brown. Like, I don't even know. Like, what's going what? the, reason, the reason why I thought they were white is because I wasn't comparing them to the good standard, Right? And so, I mean, one objection to God's judgment is, well, I judge myself according to my neighbors. You know, I'm not the one out there stealing from my company. I'm not the one out there, you know, uh, doing these really heinous, wicked things. I'm not dealing drugs, right? I, I'm, not, I'm not, you know, a crooked politician doing this, that, the other. I'm, relatively speaking, I'm a pretty good person. And that, that really is true until you compare yourself to the holiness of God. That's, that's when we realize, oh yeah, all have sinned, actually, and fall short of the glory of God. Paul doesn't say all have sinned and fall short of your neighbor. It's all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So God's judgment is fair because his holiness is the standard. He's a just judge. We also might object to God's judgment because of the Disney objection. It just seems too harsh. It just seems too harsh. And again, if that's if I can understand why why we might be tempted to think that, why culturally that's where we are as a culture. But fundamentally, what's going on there is two things: we've underestimated the holiness of God, and we've underestimated the sinfulness of sin. And that is just a part of living in a broken world. Jesus says here, there will be a day of judgment. The angels will gather the crowd, and you will be sorted. And you will be sorted into kingdom citizens, and you'll be sorted into non-kingdom citizens. And those who have rejected me, Jesus says, will be judged for their sin. They will be judged rightly by a just judge, but they will be thrown into the fiery furnace where there is wailing and the grinding of teeth forever. It's a warning here. This treasure is not for everyone. Well, what are we supposed to think about this? Well, can I just encourage you this morning that When we find warnings in the scripture of judgment, that warning is a function of grace. Jesus warns here because he's calling us to respond to the message. He's saying, you don't want to be in that barrel. You don't want to be the dead fish. You want to be a kingdom citizen. Jesus has come to rescue us from this judgment. This is the mission, right? So the warning is a function of his grace where he says, I love you and I have come to rescue you from this. Grace is the dominant note in God's symphony. You know, if if sometimes we we hear people present God and they, they emphasize his anger over sin, and God is angry over sin, but make no mistake, the dominant note of his symphony is not anger, it is grace. The Lord is abounding in loving kindness. He is merciful In fact, he shows his loving kindness to thousands of generations. That fundamental description of his character from the Old Testament, it holds true on into the new. That God is fundamentally gracious. The warning is an evidence of his grace. And by his love, sinners are transformed into saints. Jesus doesn't go into it here. 
But when we read on in the Bible, what do we find? We find that it's by faith in Jesus that God resurrects us from dead sinners into being live saints. We are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2, but we are made alive in Christ. That is a function of the grace of God. And so, again, grace is that dominant note of his symphony. And if you're here this morning and you have not put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you're saying no to him, you need to hear and have full disclosure about what that means. When you say no to Christ, you're saying yes to judgment. And yes, Jesus calls you out on your sin, but he doesn't do it in, in a tone of condemnation. He does it in a tone of mercy. Where he says, yes, you're a sinner and you're broken, but I've come for you. The rest of the Gospel of Matthew is the story of how Jesus rescues us. He rescues us by making him his kingdom citizens. How? Through his death on our behalf, where he removes our sin and his resurrection. It's by faith in his death and his resurrection that we receive these kingdom benefits, this treasure, right? And so if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, today should be the day. Soberly consider your standing before God and ask yourself, am I really so holy that I don't need his help? Am I so righteous that I will stand on the day of judgment without provision from Christ? He warns you here because he loves you. Now this treasure's value it needs to be communicated. And so that's where Jesus turns in verse 51. And this kind of completes this section. And we'll see here with the idea of the treasure. Notice verse 51. Jesus then asks the disciples, he says, Have you understood all these things? They answered him, yes. Now, okay, hold on. Let's just not run too quickly past it. Okay, if Jesus asks you a yes or no question, and you're a disciple... I mean, what were you going to say? Were you going to be like, no, not getting it? There's some evidence that they didn't quite get it, right? The verb that's used here, this is actually an interesting verb. The verb that's used here under, to understand, it's, it's used the vast majority of its times in the New Testament is in this chapter, in Matthew 13. It's a big deal in this chapter about will you understand or perceive the message, which is not just about intellectual assent, it's about accepting the message. It's about belief. So yes, it's intellectual, but it, it also involves the will. I understand it, and I'm responding to it. So Jesus is not asking them, do you understand the story? Jesus is saying, do you get it? Do you get it, guys? And they said, yes. And let's just be a little okay, charitable here. Okay. They, they, they understood the point. Right? Citizenship in the kingdom is, is immeasurable, that value, that treasure. Okay. All right, so they're, they're getting it. There's going to be a judgment. Yes, they get it. But then notice what Jesus says in verse 52. Okay, assuming you got it, therefore, he said to them, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom treasures new and old. Okay, let me, let me unpack this for you. When he says, therefore, this is like a climactic you know, uh, conclusion to the section. Right? And he says, ever, every teacher of the law, every scribe is the technical term here, every teacher of the law, so a teacher of, of the Old Testament, an expert in the Bible, right? every teacher of the law who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. I think what he's actually saying here is that they have become the new scribes. Okay, And it's, it's a little hard to unpack it in the translation. But they have become scribes as disciples of the new kingdom. 
of the kingdom of God. They have become the new scribes because they understand the nature of the kingdom of God. So there were scribes, professionals in the Bible, and they were saying, this Jesus guy is, to use Gen Z, you know, sus, right? He's, he's, Jesus is suspicious, for those of us who may not be young enough to get that, right? So they were saying Jesus should not be trusted. He should not be believed. He casts out demons by the power of Satan, right? They were like, do not listen to this guy. And Jesus says, we need new scribes, new scribes to help us understand the, the nature of the kingdom. And so Jesus says, if you get it, then you are, congratulations, here's your diploma. You are now a new scribe, a teacher of the law. But notice specifically what he says. Every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like, now we're back to parable-ish language, is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom treasures new and old. Okay, so you have to picture someone, you know, inviting someone over to their home, and you come over to their house. Maybe you've been over to someone's house, and your first time there or something, and they want to show you the random thing that they love that is super weird, okay? <laughs> I will tell you what mine is, so, so you know, in case you haven't had the joy of being here. And this was very early on. So Lindsay and I, we went on a couple of missions trips very early on. Actually, once right before we were married, and then the year after we were married, we went and did missions in New Zealand. We had a wonderful time serving the Lord um, for four months over those few years in New Zealand. And dearly treasured our time with those saints. Anyway, James Cook was the original um, British explorer who actually mapped the, the islands of New Zealand, and he actually, you know, discovered, or I mean, discovered in the Western sense, uh, these islands. And then, so there's these famous Cook maps that, that were drawn of New Zealand, and they're really cool, antique-looking maps. And so Lindsay and I got a, a, a you know, a uh, print of one of these James Cook maps, and we had it framed, and there it was in our house. And so, I mean, the first year we're married, people would be coming over to our house, and I'd be like, look at the map, right? <laughs> Can I show you how cool this map is? And I kid you not, and she's, Lindsay's with the, she's with the babies this morning, but she would tell you every time she rolled her eyes. All right, here he goes with the map again. I should never let him got it, get it framed, okay? That's absolutely true story. To this day, the Cook map still hangs in our house. Okay, you can come to the parsonage and I can show you the cook map, right? Here it is. Let me show you the treasure. Let me show you our treasures, right? The things that we have valued. Jesus says, if you're a follower of his, you've become a new scribe. And as a new scribe, there is something that you're excited about. And it's interesting, the, the term treasury here, the storeroom, uh, brings out of a storeroom treasures new and old, right? That bookends this section. So it starts with the parable about the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. And then here he says, let me tell you what you're going to do with this treasure. What you're going to do with this treasure is you're going to be so excited about it. You're going to see its value that you're going to say, hey, I need to show you the treasure. One more detail from the text. Don't miss it. Okay. Okay. You'll be uh, like an owner of a house who brings out of a storeroom treasures, treasures new and old. What does he mean? We're not getting rid of the old covenant. We're not getting rid of the Old Testament. The, the kingdom of heaven, this treasure, is how in the new covenant, what was promised in the old is fulfilled. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. 
And so when we present this treasure, the treasure of the kingdom in the gospel, when we show it to people, what we're saying is, let me show you how this was promised in ages past, but now it has come to fruition here in the coming of Jesus and in his death and resurrection on our behalf. And Jesus says, you'll be so excited about this, you'll, you'll ascertain its value accurately so that when people come over, you can't wait to show them these treasures, new and old. Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven does to you. This treasure is meant to be shared. This treasure is meant to be shared. Let me give you just a couple notes here about what Jesus says. First of all, the Bible is a complete set. You need Old and New Testament. You need them both. Don't undervalue the old, okay? Certainly don't get rid of the old and say, we're done with that. No way. We're going to show people the treasures, The character of God is consistent, Old Testament to the New Testament, right? He doesn't change. And so we see the promises of the gospel in the Old, and we see them come to fruition in the New, and then we get the instruction on so what, right? So there's your, you got to have the complete set, okay? If you, if you separate the Old from the New, and you just focus on the New Testament, as maybe sometimes we tend to do a little bit, is we just get, I mean, I understand it's the climax. It's like, that's the fulfillment, right? We focus on the New Testament, but as I know I've had this conversation with several, several of you here, it's like coming into a play at intermission, right? Yeah, you'll still get the conclusion, but you may not understand all the characters exactly. You may not know why so-and-so is singing about that or whatever, right? You're late to the party. So you need, you, need the, you need the complete set, okay? Old and New Testament, okay? Secondly here, I think we need to read the Old Testament expecting fulfillment in Christ, Jesus, when he uses this language, he says, you're going to be the new scribes. You're going to, you're going to get it. And you're going to be able to show people the treasures, old and new. Which means when we read the Old Testament, we need to expect to see them point to Christ. Okay, So I, that's a little plug for really kind of wrestling with the Old Testament and reading it with, a, with an expectation. Well, I'm going to learn something about Jesus from the Old Testament. I'm going to see how his work fulfills the Old Covenant Okay, and how the New Covenant right, is necessary and helpful. So we need, the, we need the complete set. But, of course, most importantly here, this treasure is meant to be shared, which means you need to bring it out and put it on display. you got to do it. God has placed people in your life. Well, now listen. God has ordained for people to know you so that you will show them the treasure. And what some of you might think is you might think, well, Pastor Ryan, isn't that what we pay you for? (laughs) And the answer is no. The answer is no. Because you know what? And we often talk about this, but it's worth mentioning. People will understand, right? They understand that it is my vocation to tell them about Jesus. Okay? Like, I'm contractually obligated to tell people, right? I mean, that's the way it feels to them. You know, honestly. But the fact is that there are people who will listen to you far more than they will listen to me because they know you, because they see you at work, because they they know your family. And I I can't track down all these people. The pastoral staff, the elders can't do that. You know, deacons too. We can't chase everybody down. God has ordained those people to be in your life so that you will, the verb here is bring out. It's to display. Let me show you the treasures, old and new. Now, at this point, you're thinking, well, what if I'm not, you know, really smooth in my speech? Doesn't matter. 
What if I, I, I don't have the answers to their objections? doesn't matter. God doesn't say the conversations will be easy. He doesn't say everybody's going to believe. But he does say that you are now officially a scribe, an expert in this treasure, so just show it to him. And you know what God does? In his kindness, he equips us with his spirit who will help us make it through those conversations. You don't need a class. You don't need a certificate in evangelism. What you need to do is just understand the treasure is valuable. I value it. I find often the best thing is just to be honest about how the gospel has changed your life. And just to get to know people and to share. That's it. That's it. It's not, there's, we're not trying to sign them up for a political party. Okay? It's not a, prescription, a subscription where we're trying to get them to you know, pay $99.99 you know, every month. Like, that's not what we're doing. Jesus says, just show them the treasure. This treasure is meant to be shared. I would encourage you this morning to be persistent in this and be relational in it. Don't cut people off. Get to know them. Share the goodness of this treasure. Now this treasure, this citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, right? this immeasurable treasure is possible for us. Why? Fundamentally, not because we've earned it, but because Jesus endured unspeakable hardship and pain for us because of his death and his victory and resurrection. I think we have to keep that in mind as we seek to respond to the goodness of this treasure. And in the Valley of Vision, we find one particular poem of worship that I think helps us keep this in view. Let this encourage you to respond to the treasure rightly this morning. The author writes, O Christ, all thy ways of mercy tend to and end in my delight. Thou didst weep, sorrow, and suffer that I might rejoice. For my joy, thou hast sent the Comforter, multiplied thy promises, showed me my future happiness, given me a living fountain. Thou art preparing joy for me and me for joy. I pray for joy, wait for joy, long for joy. Give me more than I can hold desire or think of. Citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is an immeasurable treasure. And by God's grace, we have found it. Brothers and sisters, we are rich. Would you pray with me? We'll ask God to help us respond to his word. Lord, we thank you for these parables. We thank you for the goodness that we see of your plan, your goodness, Lord. We thank you for the kingdom of heaven. We thank you that it's like a treasure. We pray that you would help us respond in joy to this treasure. Lord, we pray that you would prepare us to persevere through the trials and the cost of discipleship with this joy. Lord, we pray that we would rightly assess the value of your kingdom. And Lord, we pray like the priceless pearl, you would help us just to, just to look forward to experiencing your goodness. Lord, we recognize there's a warning in this passage, a warning of judgment for those who reject your kingdom. And we pray for your mercy on those who have not responded in faith. Lord, we thank you for your patience. And we pray that you would bring people to repentance, even today. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to see our role as the new scribes, to share this treasure, to put them on display, these treasures old and new. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would use us to grow your kingdom. 
Lord, give us courage when we need it, confidence in you and your word. But Lord, may we, may we walk in these good works that you have prepared for us, including sharing the gospel with those who so desperately need it around us. Lord, we ask that fundamentally we may do all this not to earn or maintain your favor, but simply out of joy because of what you have done for us in Christ. We thank you for these eternal riches. And Lord, we ask that you would help us respond by faith right now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.